Hello, welcome to the latest podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Richard Newman and this week, Yestin George is my guest, senior lecturer in the School of Media. It was great speaking to Yestin, who's had such an interesting career. He talks about his passion for media as a subject to study, his previous work as a journalist for the likes of NME, GQ and Golf Punk, all in some of their glory years, and his involvement with the Manic Street Preachers. Those are just some of the highlights from our conversation, but here's the man himself explaining his journey to the University of Brighton. I was a journalist. Uh, I did media studies at, at Polytechnic of Central London, now the University of Westminster. There was one computer, I seem to remember, between about 50 students. Uh, and then uh, after that, I I just, while I was a student, I did a fanzine, a music fanzine. I loved uh, sort of independent music. And that led me to be uh, a kind of mu- a music journalist for some time. I worked at Record Mirror first and then NME. I was a news editor of NME for five years. Then I went into football and worked for a magazine called 90 Minutes and then went to a men's magazine, GQ, and was features editor at GQ. Uh, All very exciting in the 90s. And then I kind of dipped out of uh, the world of publishing and went to work for a a band called the Manic Street Preachers for five years and uh, moved back to Wales. And then I went back into publishing again to work on a magazine called Golf Punk, which was a sports magazine, which a bunch of us started. Uh, a friend raised some funding for it. And we uh, we did really, really well. And we, it was a really groundbreaking magazine. And while I was there, I sort of started falling in love with kind of digital publishing and things and the ideas of what was possible in, in digital. So I, I, went, I moved on and started my own digital publishing company with a couple of friends. During that time, we started taking on uh, students from the University of Brighton just on placements. And I just really got off on the mentoring side of that. I'd always really encouraged um, young graduates or people who were students to try and get involved in practical journalism. And it was just good fun. They had energy. They were just kind of full of ideas and enthusiasm and also were kind of incredibly grateful, but just sort of really appreciated the amount of support they got. And that led me to teaching. I just sort of went to uh, work at Solent and that led me to, to work here full time. Great. And we'll talk about your work here at the university shortly. A a varied career across a number of different genres, really. Uh, Clearly, music and sport seem to be big passions of yours. Let's delve into your role um, at NME, Iconic Magazine. You were there during, you know, its big, big glory years, really, as well. Um, How how long were were you there? I was there between 1990 and 95 and it's odd because I always I was a massive reader. I grew up in Swansea where there were no bands ever came to play and I used to be a subscriber to the enemy and I used to publish in London on Tuesday and we'd get it on Friday morning in Swansea. It was practically there was probably one copy sent down uh, the M4 on the back of a donkey or something to be delivered in Swansea. So people say to me it was the last great period of the paper but I wouldn't I'd be kind of too modest to say that but I definitely used to look over my shoulder and worship the writers that were the generation before me so I never thought we are the greatest it always felt like we had a really 
kind of a big act to follow and there were some amazing journalists I worked with but we never really sat there and thought we were the most important we always look we always thought of the early to mid 80s as a as an, another golden era and prior to that obviously punk and the writing about punk was another golden era so you you went from writers like Julie Birchall and Tony Parsons who have gone on to you know be quite kind of renowned figures in their own right but then when I was working, it was people like uh, Marianne Hobbs. She worked on the news desk with me, who was at Radio 6, and Steve Lamack was... I lived with Steve, and he was... I took over the news desk from him, and he, he's now... He's Radio 6, Stuart McConey on Radio 2, David Quantic, who wrote Harry Hill's TV, but one of many, um, and The Thick of It, and Veep, and an amazing amazing writer. Andrew Collins was on Radio 4, and you've got kind of all kinds of really, really interesting people and really good writers. And I, I genuinely always thought that I was going to get found out at some point, <laughs> and they were going to go, oh, hang on, you're just a fanboy, aren't you? But it was great. It was really brilliant. And... It started out as a period of music, which was actually, I kind of arrived just as Madchester was dying, and it was kind of, oh, God, I couldn't have timed this worse, uh, because the Mondays and the Stone Roses were kind of falling apart, and they, they'd been such a huge, huge cultural shift, really, along with, obviously, house music at the time. So we were kind of, oh, nothing really going on. We had shoegazing, which is now a, a quite a popular niche now. But uh, at the time was just like lots of uh, middle class white kids with lank hair and big fringes staring at their shoes while they played guitars with loads of feedback. It wasn't a good look, really. But then and also grunge in America had taken off and we didn't really get grunge. You know, we were we were not really into that. And obviously Nirvana was the was the was a band that we really did get and you could not get them but generally there was a lot of stuff around at the time we we were scratching heads not getting it so when sort of blur turned up with modern life is rubbish and the brit pop and everybody started getting a little bit mod again that kind of heralded a new era for for british music and it became exciting again and i ju I, I left the enemy just as oasis were kind of uh, turning up you know, we we'd had some real fun with them when when they started off, and it was yeah, they were really exciting times. But you know, I I always just felt like I couldn't. I had to pinch myself nearly every day that I was there. Mm. And and what about your work with with GQ? There'd been a, a revolution in men's publishing. The nineties were the, GQ and Esquire were the only titles um, at the start of the nineties, and they were. They had people like Michael Heseltine on the cover of the magazine and they really weren't selling very many copies and also they just didn't mean anything to anybody really. They were there as sort of advertising vehicles, you know, rather than rather than as interesting magazines. And then um, a couple of friends actually started Loaded magazine and that kind of kick-started a, a, quite a kind of revolution in men's publishing. For Him magazine became FHM and then Maxim was launched and these magazines were went absolutely stellar they went from zero to a million copies in a month loaded kick-started that just through the this sort of much derided lads mag uh kind of uh reputation as something i'd really love to address in an academic context really because there are some really interesting things to be explored about that and it's dismissed out of hand as as a period of publishing which kind of um you know but it, in its in its own way it was quite phenomenal 
GQs and the and the you know and the esquires of the world looked around, going, "Hang on a minute, we want a piece of this action." So they persuaded a s- significant number of the the loaded people to go over. So we literally went to Condé Nast, which is the most amazing company, you know, a family-run company by the Newhouses in, in from New York. Uh, you know, we're in Hanover Square, just off Oxford Street. I was kind of not attached to Loaded, but they brought me in as as a features editor. Mm-hmm. And it was great because we really wanted to actually kind of grow up a little bit. Uh, we wanted to address issues about, okay, we've had the lads period. What's this now? What What is this about being a parent? Or can you still listen to the Beastie Boys and skateboard when you're 35? Or is it just not a good look? And as we living in Brighton, we know it's kind of, we see a lot of that around. Mm. Um, and so it was kind of, it was a really interesting period. And we were, we were really, we, we thought the magazine was turning into something really exciting. And unfortunately, through one thing and another, the the publishers just wanted us to put lovely ladies on the cover as they used to say it was a little bit of a heartbreaker because we were looking to change the nature of men's magazines and they actually just wanted lovely ladies on the cover yeah so we all grew a little bit disillusioned and I was features editor there and it kind of broke my heart when I did a, a Lauren Hill cover it took me months and months to get that sorted and they ended up putting I think it was Denise Van Outen on the cover instead. Nothing wrong with Denise Van Outen, but Lauren Hill went on to re- win seven Grammys about six mm. months later, and I thought, oh, come on, guys. Mm. So I packed it in. Most of my colleagues are still there, and that's mad because it's not, I left in 1999, wow. and nearly all of my colleagues are still there. It's, it's the greatest place to work. It's a fantastic company, brilliant publishing company, and a brilliant employer, but it was just, yeah, I just didn't get it. Well, then you moved into, well, you had your involvement with the Manic Street Preachers and during one of their most successful periods as well. I mean, that, what did that job entail? I mean, it must have some great stories as well. Yeah, it's it's it was mad, actually, because of what I was doing was I, I went to be working a kind of marketing capacity for them. Um, but I didn't get on with the Manics initially. My first language is Welsh. My first English lesson was when I was doing my degree you know I'd, mm-hmm. I'd gr- grown up through the medium of Welsh completely and the Manics were a bit suspicious of these Welsh nationalists which I am one which is also quite kind of not the right thing to say in the in any you know it's nationalism is such mm-hmm. a bad word so yeah I didn't get on with them at all and I, and the, they, they were obsessed with the music press the Manics when they started and so uh, it took about seven or eight years for me to finally meet them and I and when we did meet we got on really well they wanted to open a kind of like a kind of um a restaurant and a and a bar that was going to bring together like poets and indie musicians and politicians and it was going to be this post devolution kind of national assembly kind of socializing area which would be there would be no cliques there would be it would allow people to just come and change wales i know it sounds a bit weird through the medium of beer but you know that that was the ambition so I went I went over there and I worked for them for five years and we opened the club and it was it was way ahead of its time way ahead of the city's expectations and it was beautiful and it was great but it didn't last very long and it spent a lot of their money and I also worked on a project called Manic Millennium they actually were the the band they played in front of more people in it was the biggest 
indoor gig on millenn- in the world on Millennium Eve, which is quite a thing. And it was great to be able to work on that. But my son, my son was due to be born that night. So I had a pager, a mobile phone. <laughs> and I, it was kind of weird being in, in the Millennium Stadium watching the band while thinking I could be dashing off to a hospital in Abergavenny at any given moment. Yeah, but a bit he, on edge. He waited, he waited another four days to get <laughs> born and then ended up as I actually has played guitar on a Manic Street Preachers track. So wow. it's kind of really amazing. That's awesome. I know. Yeah, yeah. really cool. Um, golf Punk then came about. What, what tempted you back into that then? And where, where did the idea come from? In all honesty, I'd become a bit disillusioned with... We, I think a lot of us had, when Wales uh, achieved a, a level of independence, a lot of us were really excited about the possibility. So we kind of volunteered, you know, we, a lot of us were working in Wales. We went back to Wales. There were people who were thinking, great, this is going to be our time because we were the right generation. We were in our 30s. We had ideas. We wanted to change everything from you know, media to to kind of uh, even politics and, and things like that. So uh, after five years, it kind of became evident that that wasn't going to happen and that the old guard was still in place. And there was a kind of innate conservatism in Wales, which was really totally against what our political principles are. I basically looked around and a friend of mine was, uh, my best friend who, who started Loaded magazine, had raised some money to start this publishing company and he'd, he'd been a golfer in Haywards Heath when he was 15 years old and, you know, he was used to getting kind of told that he wasn't allowed in this place or wasn't allowed in that place and he his trousers and his hair weren't right and he needs to, you know, buck up his ideas and join the Masons and all that kind of stuff. So Golf Punk was a reaction to, really, a reaction to that and also the fact that golf is the most democratic game in that you have a handicap system so in theory I could go out and play with Tiger Woods tomorrow it would be embarrassing but (laughs) I could go and do that Um, and I would get 28 shots and I would try and compete with him and that kind of thing was great Uh, you know we we celebrated golf rather than the the kind of things that that golf became elitist racist uh, sexist and all those things and we but we didn't do it through being angry and cross we did it through celebrating mm. uh, you know the, the the origins of the game mm. and the rules of the game and all those things and it was brilliant and we got voted by the guardian as one of the top 50 magazines in the world and this was just a bunch of herberts on you know working out of an office in brighton there were a few of us with a lot of experience and a few of us with none at all and it was that's where my sort of mentoring tutoring mm. thing came into play because we had a bunch of guys who then created the spirit of golf punk because through their youthful energy and we had the experience to know how to put a good magazine together was golf something that you were already interested in or was it something that you just you sort of bought into with when the idea came about i was always interested in the game but i was you know i never i didn't really play it very much and i but i also i i grew into playing you know appallingly I mean, truly i just had no one of the other things about the the other golfing magazines was that it was always you're not good enough buy more kit you're not mm. good enough read our you know get more lessons and we weren't we were like you're not good enough just just hack your way around it's yeah. fine and the, one of the things was traveling you know from southern carolina to the isle of arran to play golf to you know um, some of the great old venerable courses in scotland learning about the nature of the game 
it was great. Mm. You know, it was really an amazing experience. And you met you met golfers. They were like they're like Formula One drivers, but in a more sedate, slightly sedate way. But they these people are very influential and very high earning, mm. powerful people. So when you go around to Jesper Parnovic's house and you check him in the in you know in the uh, lake at the end of his garden for a photo shoot and then he invites you around for a barbecue in the evening and then says why don't you stay over i mean that's like very infrequently to have that kind of access and also insight it gives you as a journalist you get an incredible insight into somebody then mm. what do you think the the future of magazines is because i i guess you know a lot of them are going digitals they offer a digital offering as well the main the, the big ones a lot of young people don't want their whole lives to be digital. So we've had the resurgence of records and record players. And I mean, here in Brighton, there's a mag- shop called Magazine, which is just focused on independent magazines. People want something tangible. They want something in their hands, don't they? So what's the, what do you think the future of magazines is in this digital world? I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that I have kids, you know, and they're 18 and 19 and 21. Both of them now uh, recognise the value of having a film camera or and it's not just hipster nonsense i think they really do there's a thirst for the tangible without a doubt interestingly i had a social with a with a lot of people from my enemy days and they're now working at q or mojo or esquire and they they all independently i had short chats with them all about what they felt their the future was because I, I can guess all i like but i haven't been in print publishing for quite a while now they all independently said bi-monthly bigger issues bigger better greater kind of um quality control and a sense that somebody can own something that they might have to pay 18 pounds for mm. but they will buy it every two months and they will sit and it will sit on their coffee table for two months mm. and they'll be happy with that obviously it's a kind of statement about what they like um, but it's also the great thing from an editorial point of view is that for the last 20 years, uh, for instance, the editors of uh, editors of Uncut magazine, um, there would be four or five people in the office and they would be producing a monthly magazine that's 12 or maybe even 13. And then they would be uh, producing at least another 12 special issues. So like an REM special. Mm. So they would be producing 20-something magazines with a tiny little set of uh, of staff and a ton of freelancers. And I, I've been telling my students not to work in, not to go and work in those traditional publishing environments for about five years now. You know, I've... The students that I'm proudest of are the people who who are working for, say, an IKEA magazine where they're traveling around the world um, shooting high-quality features with with people who are living in Marrakesh or something mm. like that. Mm. And that, that's as editorially credible for me as churning out 5,000-word think pieces on REM because you want to sell a few more issues. So I'm really glad. I'm quite positive now. But I think that we, it's a bit like the music industry. I always say to students, I love music. My vested interest is not the music industry. Obviously, I want the artist to be paid. But uh, the, when they talk about the decline of the music industry and the major labels, that's fine. 
this is only a 50-year-old industry. It will evolve and it will change. And I think of the same with publishing. I worked at IPC magazines, which is the biggest consumer magazine company in Europe. And it was like, it was a 30-floor factory of magazines. That's fine. You know, work, TV Times, Cajun Avery Bird, <laughs> um, Country Life, loads and loads of different titles. That's not my interest. Is My interest is the product, not the way that the industry is structured. So I think it will be. It'll be cooler. It'll be better. It'll be higher quality. But the companies themselves will be smaller. But that's fine. Let's talk about your work here at the University of Brighton. Um, as you said at the start, teach across a, a range of, of modules and subjects. Look at it from, the, from some of the views from the outside world, looking into media, because it can, people can get a bit sniffy about studying it, can't they? We're hearing lots of things. Obviously, don't know what's happening with things like the Orga report. We don't know whether things whether it's going to be cheaper to to study those. I mean, what do you make of the whole debate? I mean, I know what side of the fence you're going to you're, you're, you're going to sit on. But yes, media studies is rubbish. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about this when I was studying the media. It was TV, radio, and print, and now it's obviously a whole different world and the fact that something like the Sri Lankan government can shut down social media because it's concerned about what messages that are going out through social media and things like that and I have a standard slide on PowerPoint which has a picture of you know uh, an electrician's van with like us on Facebook you know they're kind of everyone's a media company now Mm -hmm. right everyone's got an Instagram account I think it's some, it is imperative. If you have any interest at all in politics, culture, or the kind of level of societal structures and things like that, if you're not engaged with media studies in some way or another, you're not doing yourselves any favours at all. I mean, I think it's the most important subject of all, but then I would say that. What what frustrates, I know, I know what frustrates... Um, a lot of my students coming in to do these subjects that we teach is that they've been almost bullied into science, technology, engineering or maths subjects and they've they've been isolated as the kind of the unimportant freaks and weirdos. And in a way, I can, we kind of like that. We really want to be a home for freaks and weirdos um, because I think that, again, it's innate instinctively to if, every, if all the fish are swimming one direction, I think we should encourage our fish to swim in the opposite way and so media studies is really important and I just enjoy working with the students so much is that media industry and innovation looks at not just new technologies but also kind of it has a more greater involvement with industry in Brighton so we work with businesses in Brighton and it's really great because they get to meet people Um, media environmental communication when you meet the students who are on those courses, they look like you could just go, can you just take over the world, please? They, they're they activists, but they also do it with a kind of extinction rebellion type of attitude where it's it's kind of like a positive attitude rather than just like angry um, and ferocious and resentful. It's just so interesting. And I can see when extinction rebellion suddenly appeared and the the nature of that, protest i could just see it just reflected the way that the students are and all of these things that are all so closely linked with the media these kind of protests everything from you know marches on 
uh, you know, to protest against Brexit, for instance, you know, the Remain marches and things, all of those are fueled by things like podcasts, but fueled by, by people with loud voices on Twitter who are worth thinking about. You know, the mainstream media is ignoring all of these things. And there's this counterculture media now, which is really exciting. And it isn't just, oh, look, it's just the Kardashians, etc. It isn't that. There's so much interesting stuff going on. There's so much pressure on young people to um, go to university, but also to study those traditional subjects. And that's fine if they're very passionate about it and they want to go into a certain industry. But I guess there's some students who sort of don't really know which direction to head in. And like you were saying, the great thing about media studies is that it's something that is they are, they're involved with in their in their day to day life. Children are growing up now with around social media and all kinds of things around them. So if that's a way of getting young people excited and passionate about going into higher education, it's a broad church media study, so it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, it's it's exactly that. You can media studies tends to be a a little bit more of a sitting back and seeing what the world what the world's all about. So obviously your students come in and they're largely they're consumers of social media and they and then they slowly get to realise the messages and all these things that they're marketed to far more than they ever thought they were. They realise they're being, you know, algorithms that are, are shaping their their views and their opinions. They think they've got an independent mind. Well, actually, they're being kind of controlled to a certain extent. So over the three-year period, it's just really interesting to see this this evolution in people. And they do that by sitting back and analysing and looking at and reflecting on what they're doing. But they also get the opportunity to then kind of work in that field. So my, my thing is people used to come to into their second year, for instance, say, I want to work in television. But that's like saying, I want to work in a television. You know, they don't understand what that means, you know. Um, so it's not just working in television, is it? Because that could mean that you'd be working on the shopping channel. You know, it's not about the medium. It's actually about the, the subject. It's still about the subject. So as a kid, yeah, I would. I loved music. So I was always... I loved as a consumer of music. I wasn't a player of music, so I was obsessed with scenes and bands and DJs and all that kind of stuff. So that was my that was my bread and butter. Similarly with sports, I loved rugby and I loved football and I loved cricket, you know, and all of those things. So it's really nice that you can do media studies, but you can specialize in areas of, of that you're interested in. So it's not like you're not doing the media. You're actually doing the subject you're do- that you're interested in and you're passionate about, that you love. And it, it can be anything from skateboarding to gymnastics, you know, or to cheerleading. To And, and people say, what? You've got a media student who's done a project on on dogs with breathing difficulties, you know, because she loves dogs. And so she just decided to do her final degree project on on pugs and other dog breeds. And it wasn't like an angry protest. It was a really sensitive, beautifully shot and also thoughtful project about dogs. And people go, that's for me, that's a media project, right? That's not that's not like social media is a thing. It's not about the medium. It's about the subject. Is that the sort of thing that excites you most? Maybe about working probably tell, in, you? in high, yeah, in, <laughs> in in higher education because obviously you, you you said you got a taste for it before, and you got when you're doing the mentoring, you got very excited about that. And coming into higher ed- education is this, I guess, it's kind of like a 
going off into, into a second career as well, but yeah. using your, your past experiences. Yeah. How much do you love working in higher education then compared yeah. to what you were doing before? Well, it just feels more real because you are, you know, you're generally shaping, working with people who are inspiring. I just saw, you know, a third year MII, Media Industry and Innovation student, upstairs now and she's working with the university on like a vr virtual reality project and you just think she's like cleverer than i am you know she's really smart she's making all the connections and i'm just thinking this is one of the first times that i've felt that she's dwarfing me in terms of her capacity to understand the range of this subject now and you, that's just unbelievable mm. you know you've taken somebody from literally she used to work in a circus you know, she's Italian, she's from Milan, and she's now, she's now almost, almost knows more about this area and the potential of this field in terms of how you use VR in education than anybody else in this university. And she's spent a year just totally embedded with that. It's just, it's just amazing. Mm. It's just brilliant. And I think that the students are the, the people who make me excited. And the students are the people who give the whole place its spirit and what we should just be doing is just providing them with not quite an empty shell for them to play with but there, there are so many issues you know it's it, there are so many things about students being fearful students needing validation student need thinking that they're walking out with a piece of paper and a and a grade that is going to validate their career all of those things that vex me on a daily basis and it's i love that i love the fact that i've got to just i kind of have to go to war with a lot of attitudes and opinions and i pay for this so therefore dot 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 and you just kind of it's i love the idea that you can have this nearly every session is an argument of, that comes up in the argument and i just love every minute of it Mm. Uh, we'll just finish off with just a couple of things that you're still in you're still interested in as well so couldn't help but notice as well you contribute to a, a fan podcast about the Wales rugby union team so you're obviously a big a big rugby union fan world couple on the on the way training squad selected for for wales as well yeah. what, where's your head at with that and uh how, how excited are you after the grand slam win and and how much do you enjoy doing the podcast uh, i i I, lo- I really like the podcast because um my knowledge is not really great, you know. I, I'm not. There are people on that podcast who are professional rugby reporters. It's about fan, exactly fan passion, though, isn't it? Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Um, it's a it's a good laugh, and the people who run it are really good people. In terms of Wales, it's you know my identity is 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 very much kind of locked in on everything. You know, uh, there's nothing worse than than people who don't live in Wales. You know, they feel their Welshness even stronger than anything. I get referred to as Lestin all the time in lectures and, uh, you know, I in and people's... And I, I always say to any students, if anybody here has any Welsh heritage, they automatically get 10% more in their grades. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I try and kind of bring out the Welshness in everybody because mm. I think that that's something that's... Uh, that's kind of done in, say, Irish and to a lesser extent Scottish, but the Welsh tend to keep their light under a bushel a bit more. So I'm a bit more. So I'm very, very uh, passionate supporter of Welsh rugby and 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 all Welsh sport. To be honest, Geraint Thomas winning the Tour de France mm. was the greatest thing ever, and I think Warren Gatland has just delivered hugely and silenced 
all of us and include, including me who doubted his you know his methods and i think the world cup that it's just really nice to be able to be a country of 3 million people who can walk, can you know turn up for a world cup thinking well we've got a really good chance of being in the last in the you know in the top 4 of that and seeing how it goes everything then is just down to circumstance mm. in the day but that's something to be proud of, really. Definitely. Um, and we're releasing this podcast at the same time as the Great Escape Festival. Yeah. Uh, it's happening here in Brighton. It's an event which is getting bigger and bigger, more and more popular. It's it, almost like a huge number of small acts, isn't it? Yeah. That's the, that's the great thing about the Great unique. Escape. It's incredible. And I'm amazed that a lot of students who come to the university are unaware of it and that's one of the things we're launching a music business and media degree in in september and that's something that we want to be you know really we have a we have a role to play in in the city i think that is again not critical as in criticizing but critical in terms of we we're not just we're not producing people who are going to be sound engineers or, or or going to be musicians or anything like that we want we're producing people who can who can write and v- video and photograph and also you know manage and think about um setting up labels so it'll be really interesting how that goes but the great escape is a fantastic event i wish it had happened 20 years earlier because i feel i tend to get like really tired by the end of Friday because Friday's the last industry day and all the in- all my friends from the music industry all and you stand outside the wagon and horses having seeing all the people that you grew up with in your 20s which is just great it's a long time ago now and by the end of that day I almost feel like I need to lie down for a couple of days and it still hasn't finished yet but it's still a, it's an amazing event yeah I mean it's one of those sort of events that happen in Brighton where the whole city really comes alive doesn't it yeah. we've got the, the great escape and um the marathon the fest the brighton yeah. festival the fringe and pride obviously it really becomes a big buzzing occasion so that, so that sometimes when you miss the the old job a little bit really being involved in it really being on the inside do you yeah. kind of get a little bit of oh i yeah. wish i was still doing a little bit yeah no they're definitely they i i, I left the enemy because i thought i left you know because i thought that being 28 meant I was over the hill. My friends are still working at Mojo and Q, editing these magazines, and they're all sort of knocking on their 50s, if if not older now. Popular music has become a different thing to what it was like in the 1990s. And I sort of fell on my sword thinking, I need to pass it on to the next generation, which is good because Andy Kappa took over from me and he then launched Vice and, and, was, and has done some amazing work. So I guess that my decision was justified but there are times when I just think and also music business people are I know that there's a kind of stereotype but they are really lovely you know they they love they do it for the love of it they do it because they were in their bedrooms when they were 13 and 14 and geeking out on their favorite bands so there's always and nobody's in the music business or certainly the people that I spend time with they were not in the music business just for the status or for the or, or for the kind of um for the glamour they were there because they loved it uh, we end every podcast with some quick fire questions yes. uh, four questions same on every podcast so the first one would be could you pick a favorite place in sussex i love the downs i cycle uh, along the downs and i uh, i would say that the that the strip between uh, devil's dyke and ditchling beacon has been my best friend in and my confidant and my savior 
for the last five years. I try and go there through the winter and see the changing, changing sort of, you know, the, the harsh, harsh winters to the beautiful summer evenings. And nothing gives me a greater sense of perspective than being up on the downs. Is that road cycling or do you no, on the, mountain, on bike, mountain, biking, mountain bike down yeah. the South Downs way? And stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. it's just uh, mm. the best way to spend three hours. I've never, ever come back down not totally adrenalized and and having had conversations with people or just had I'm not one of those where I'm just stravering it and trying to get my personal best I actually I, I love cycling with my head up and seeing what's around and just noticing the subtle differences that that happen through the seasons and you know the lambs in you know in mid mid March April just you know that kind of thing you just can't the rhythm of nature that's what the downs are. It reminds me where I am in the world and it can patch up all sorts of, you know, if you're feeling angsty or stressed out by something or anything like that, it's just, just it's it's got healing powers that place really has. Mm. Uh, what are you currently reading, watching and or listening to? I'm listening to, I, I've, I've, conf- I, I've had to confess to becoming... A Spotify, uh, Spotify is now my music journalism. You know, uh, the Discover Weekly and Release Radar are my are my best friends. So, I take whatever they tell me to listen to, and I I, I also listen to Charles Peterson a lot. And I look, so I'm I've got a tendency at the moment to go down that kind of neo soul jazz route. Um, and there's a lot of stuff. But Anderson Park is probably the the artist that I would say is the one that I just think is absolutely flawless at the moment, and is seems to be completely unable to do anything that isn't just fantastic, and will be you know as big as as big as he wants to be. I think as an artist, he's brilliant. Mm. Um, in terms of reading, I'm kind of trying to find a book that tells me how to fix things in society rather than tells me what's gone wrong. So uh, I've gone through those um, th- a kind of bunch of books that have sort of set out where we are in the world. Describe your perfect weekend. I tend to be kind of quite a quiet Friday night guy, and that goes back to my enemy days. We used to we used to go to press on Friday, and I'd be tired and emotional, and I would have three pints of Cronenberg, and right at the beginning, anyway, I'd stuck. I'd probably cry through relief and stress and all those things. So I've I've always been not very good on the, you know, leaving the office on a Friday, throwing your tie in the bin and sort of, and, you know, charging out on a big night out. So quiet night Friday, ride on the South Downs Saturday. And then what I do at the moment is I, I tend to then, I go marathon dog walking uh, around Again, around the South Downs after that. Sunday lunch at the Southern Bell in the heart of Brighton, which is the best Sunday lunch of all. Um, and I t- I'm quite a, I'm quite low-key, really. I'm not very big on sort of discos and parties. I always think that people... It's about time that we should... The 50-somethings of Brighton should actually stay in more because I feel sorry for my children because we're in the we're in their way all the time. It's like patterns and all the clubs and all the clubs and cool bars and stuff. It's just full of it's like let the young people take them over. Uh so I I'm very much in favor of uh, of kind of 
maybe a curfew for the over 50s. I right. think that would be a really good idea. <laughs> um, and just finally, if you could invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be? I've wrestled with this hugely. Um, I love Stuart Lee, and I, I think I know that he's, you know, comedians tend to be not funny guys if you know what I mean mm-hmm. but he's also a massive music fan so I know that that I I would really like to spend some time with him because I've never actually met him I would like somebody like a real venerable old golfing icon but somebody who was kind of instructive in there were people like Francis we met who was the uh, who was an amateur golfer who won the US Open and I've been lucky enough to to sort of interview people like Jack Nicholas and Gary Player and people like that. They they're not, you know, they're not quite. They're just golfers, really. Mm. Um, Gary Player is quite a character sometimes. He though, is isn't a he? character, yeah. But it would be somebody more probably in the. I'd really love to have. Can you imagine sitting with old Tom Morris, like this grim Scottish man with a long beard, who's kind of you know used to bathe in the in the sea off off St Andrews every morning, three hundred sixty five days a year, <laughs> sitting there being just like, what's this? The what, kumquat? I'll give you kumquat. <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. I'd be quite funny. Um, and then, actually, would that just in a terrible, terrible name dropping way that I really enjoy. I I used to work a lot with I I didn't discover Jamie Oliver because he had already shot his first series but he'd he became a really good friend because we were looking for a somebody to do a column in GQ and he was just working in the River Cafe at the time and he wasn't you know a recognizable figure and he blew up pretty quickly afterwards I don't see that much of him but he's kind of like amazingly in contact whenever I need to speak to him he'll he'll be in touch it's just astonishing for somebody of whose diary is full for like two years and whenever I have a meal with him it's always absolutely great fun and just flies by and it's unpretentious and he's there are a few people like that Griff Reese from Super Furry Animals the sort of people that I don't I'd love to just sit down. I know them, but I'd love to just spend more time with them. And there's quite a long list of people I feel like I I know and I love them and I don't spend enough time with them. So it really, I'd rather spend time with people I know rather than people like Gandhi or something. Thanks to Yestin for giving up his time to speak to us. You can find out more about our media courses by visiting brighton.ac.uk or clicking or tapping the links in the podcast description. Next week, we'll be focusing on Mental Health Awareness Week. Join us then. In the meantime, you can like and subscribe to this podcast and listen to previous editions by searching University of Brighton on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Thanks for listening.